You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. The theme of this little Easter series that we're doing is the theme of atonement, um, which is a word that describes Jesus' finished work for us on the cross. And if you're a word nerd like me, um, anyone? No. All right, I got one or two. All right, uh, well, you guys might know, or at least be excited by the fact that uh, this is kind of a unique term in Christian theology because it's the only doc, the, the, the only name of a doctrine that we have that actually comes from our own language, comes from English. It's a whereas most of the doctrinal words we have in Christian theology are kind of Greek or Latin in origin. Atonement comes from Anglo-Saxon. It literally means at one meant. And it's the idea that we're all familiar with and the idea that precedes it historically by a long way. Um, The idea that where you have two estranged parties, what happens to bring them back into reconciled relationship is atonement. It's at-one-ment. Whatever happens that brings those parties back together is the act of at-one-ment, atonement. And that word is used to describe Jesus' work on the cross because it's that work that re-reconciles us to God. That is, we were estranged, we were enemies, we were far from God. Jesus dies in our place for our sin. And through that death and resurrection, we are made at one with God. It's atonement. And over 2,000 years of Christian history... um, It's worth knowing that there's never been one single perspective or theory on the atonement. There's been several different perspectives, and it makes sense because the atonement is so cataclysmic, so huge, so universal, that different cultures from different periods in history and different parts of the world have seen it in in different lights, from different perspectives. So one way of thinking about this is if you think about the cross that's at the front of our church, we have this big freestanding cross. Um, Over the last 2,000 years, different groups of people have approached the cross from different angles. So some, some people have been right at the base of the cross out there and have looked up and have seen one aspect of the cross, one perspective. Others of us have been way back here and we've seen it in a different perspective. The point is everyone has been looking at the same thing, but they have seen it from different angles. And that is what I would like to do over the next few services that we're together. I would like us to be able to assume the position of different cultures in the way that they have viewed the cross And the point is that we would be able to see that Scripture actually shows us this this picture of the cross that is multi-perspectival, and that's the reason why the message of Christianity is universal. It can actually be understood and received by people of all different cultures. So the different ways that I'd like us to look at this over the next few weeks are uh, using the three major worldviews that exist globally. It's worth noting that with globalization, um, the, the distinctions between these cultures or different ways of seeing the world are sort of diminishing, but they are still pretty prominent. And if you've ever spoken to people from different parts of the world, you would have gained an understanding of this and probably found out um, that these differences sometimes make it difficult for us to communicate one another because we come from such different bases in our understanding of the world. 
Here's, here's the big idea. There are three major ways of viewing the world. Um, in, if you are from the Middle East through to the Far East, so from the Middle East through Asia and, and the Asian in, in, into the subcontinent, um, you will likely view the world through the lens of shame and honour. Shame and honour. This is how you understand social obligation, moral obligation, civic obligation. You understand the world largely through, that is, how you should behave in the world, largely through the lens of shame and honour. An example of this was just a brief discussion this morning with someone whose cultural heritage is from that area of the world. And he said, yes, um, it brings honour to the family for someone to become a doctor. So if, if you are from this area of the world and, 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 son, and your son becomes a doctor, this is not just like kudos to him. This is not just about the fact that he studied hard or whatever, but this actually brings honour to us as a family, as a community, perhaps even to a, a, a whole village. Um, from the perspective of the person becoming a doctor, this is not mainly about my passion to do medicine. That's a very Western understanding of, of, of motivation, individualistic. I'm doing this because I'm pursuing my passion. This is more about how I can bring honour to my family, to my culture, right? Very different way of seeing the world. And that, that lens shapes much of how they see the world in general, not just when it comes to social obligation, but the world in general. In fact, it shapes the way that they see the gospel itself. Then you have in uh, parts of most of Latin America, uh, most of sub-Saharan Africa, anywhere where you have a tribal culture, they see the world not through shame and honour, but through fear and power. So people from these cultural backgrounds, they see the world, it's like, it's just as much as the world is material, it is also spiritual. And so in these cultures, you have whole ways of viewing the world that are um, immaterial. To them, the world is full of spirits and immaterial powers, and much of life and social obligation, civic obligation, moral obligation is shaped by what the spirits will think of the thing that I'm about to do, how the spirits, the, the spiritual realm will interact with the thing that I'm doing. This is what breeds a lot of, uh, and I don't mean this in a sort of pejorative sense, it's just a fact that in these cultures you have a lot of taboos, you have a lot of superstitions, you have a lot of rituals, and all of these things are designed to appease this spirit realm. Then you have people from Western civilization people who look more like me, uh, people from the West largely conceive of themselves, of um, their civic moral obligations, social obligations in terms of not, not of shame and honour, not of fear and power, but of innocence and guilt, right? So the way I behave is shaped by what the law tells me to do. Whether I'm right or wrong is largely influenced by whether the law says it's right or wrong. And beyond that, the scope of the, the law itself, there is myself. I determine what's right for me to do. I will follow my heart. I will, you know, we're tuned into the self. One of our great desires is for self-esteem. To most of the rest of the world, that is a nonsense. You don't 
give esteem to yourself and your esteem is not based on yourself. It's something that the community bestows on you. And so these different ways of seeing the world massively influence the way that we see the cross. And so I want to enter into these different worlds over the next few weeks and see what the gospel has to say to those people and about those major problems that each of those cultures face. The major problem for the shame-honor culture is this desire to avoid shame. For those from the fear-power side of things, the, the major problem is fear. How do you deal with fear? And the major problem for those of us from a Western culture is how do we deal with guilt? And the point is that Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. So today we're focusing on shame and honour and how the cross deals with that whole, um, that whole dynamic. To give you an idea, if you're from a Western culture, just a, a, the, the different ways that we see the world and particularly this idea of, of shame or guilt, for people in Western cultures, our social behaviour is regulated with guilt. Right, so just check yourself and say, if you're from a Western culture, just, or, or if you've come from another culture into the West, see if this is something that you've picked up on. So our understanding is that the government creates and enforces rules, and so we teach our children to feel guilty for breaking those rules. And that's how their whole sense of social obligation is shaped from a very young age. You did the wrong thing, you did the right thing. It's based on guilt and innocence. For Eastern cultures, um, they regulate social behavior with shame. Not guilt and innocence, but shame. Relationships and, and public opinions determine what's right and wrong. And children are taught to bring honor to their family or tribe. Yesterday, for my birthday, my, my, my family took me to Werribee Open Range Zoo. And it, was, it struck me very forcefully that this one group of people from some Asian nation, um, it, there were like a dozen young adults, maybe late teens young adults. And it was obvious that they were very Western teen young adults. Just the language that we, they were using... It, it, the fact that I could barely understand what they were saying told me that I was 40 and that they were 17 or something, right? And that, that, but they had been very enculturated. And yet, in this group of, yeah, maybe a dozen or so, there was one older gentleman, like quite considerably old, a grandfather or, or something, and they were constantly attending to him. Even as teenage, very young adults probably rather consumed with themselves, if they're like most of that age group, if I can say that, they were still very attentive to this older gentleman. That is something that they have imbibed from their culture. You bring honour to the family or tribe, and particularly in the shame-honour tradition, you bring honour to the elders. And so these forces are very strong in shaping how we see the world and, by implication, how we see the gospel. Many a Western missionary has entered into an Eastern culture and found their whole vocabulary had to change. It wasn't enough to say that you are a guilty sinner and that 
through Jesus you can be made innocent. That didn't translate and doesn't translate very well. And the good news is, about the good news, is that it's not just a Western tradition. In fact, first century Rome, where the church grew up and where all of this New Testament theology was born, was a shame and honor culture, very much. And it's not until we have our, if if you're from my culture, not until we have our eyes open to this fact that you, 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 you miss so much of the gospel message that is very evident and very prominent to those who have come from a shame and an honor culture. Give you a couple of illustrations of this. I've been told that in the Middle East, if you're at a swimming pool in the Middle East and a lifeguard blows a whistle, all the white people turn around and face the lifeguard. Everyone else just keeps doing what they were doing. But the the Western people have been brought up to be very attentive to guilt and innocence. A whistle is blown, have I done something wrong? That's the question we ask. We all turn around and stop. Everyone else just keeps on doing what they were doing because they haven't been brought up and shaped by that sense, I'm either innocent or guilty. Another example of this, just the other day, every day I kind of either walk or skateboard to work. And the other day I was, I was skating along beside the lake and then I came to cross a very narrow street and I had to suddenly stop because a, a young guy was coming flying down the street, like just as fast as his car could possibly go. And it kind of gave me a bit of a jolt. And so I said, I just, he had his window down and I just kind of yelled out, slow down. And, um, and he did, abruptly. And then I wondered whether I should have said that. And, and he just looked at me and said, who are you? I was telling him to slow down on the basis of the law. He was breaking the law. He was going too fast. He was a- appealing not to innocence or guilt, but shame and honor. Who are you? What status do you have in, a- in telling me what to do? So these, these different understandings of how the world works shape how we see the world, and particularly when it comes to our own um, assessment of ourselves before God, this has, a, this has massive implications, as you'd expect. Why do I need Jesus to save me? That answer is going to be very different based on which culture you come from, or at least the predominant way you have of seeing the world. I was thinking about this this last week because two weeks ago, remember, we looked at the, pro- the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. That is a story written for a shame honor culture. And the whole story is about shame and honor. In, through a Western lens, we might see this as kind of a story of a guilty son who's, who's, who's forgiven, but actually, it's mainly about honor and shame. You have the younger son who dishonors his family dishonors his father, dishonors his brother by demanding his inheritance, telling his dad he wishes he was dead, going off and squandering it with prostitutes and the the absolute nadir of the story, right? The absolute, the bottom of the barrel is where he's feeding pigs and starving himself. That is shame personified. He has shamed himself, he has dishonored his family. And so the response of the older son which is 
you know, he's indignant. He's angry at his younger brother. He has the right response. In a shame honor culture, you're reading that, you get to the older brother's response, and you're like, yeah, that's right. He's righteous. He has retained his honor. The son has dishonored and brought shame on his family. This sense of, um, it's very hard for Western individualized kind of people, people who live in an individualistic society where it's all about me and my bad choices don't influence my family. You know, it's just, he, uh, my younger brother is, you know, this is not true by the way, but for example, if my younger brother is a drug dealer, well, that's on him. It's guilt and innocence. He's guilty. It doesn't really affect us so much. He did the wrong thing. He'll, he'll do the time. Not so in a shame on a culture. My younger brother is a doctor. We all enjoy the, the honor that that brings. My younger brother is a drug dealer. We all carry the shame. So it is in that story of the prodigal son. He has brought dishonor on the family. And so Jesus then flips that whole thing on its, on its head when he introduces the father. What does the father do? The father has not done anything to bring shame on the family, but he enters into the shame, right? He runs down the road very, in a very kind of shameful way for an older Jewish man, runs down the road, kisses his son, covers him in kisses, very um, undignified, enters into his shame and then restores him, restores his honor, puts a robe on his back, a ring on his finger, throws a party for him. Jesus says that's what God is like and that is the very thing that Jesus himself does. Enters into our shame by dying a shameful death, rises again to honor, taking us with him, restoring us to honor with him. We'll get to exactly how that happens a little bit later on. But that's the point of the story of the prodigal son and people from shame on a culture's get it much better than people like me do. I remember in 2006, um, the World Cup, um, uh, I was watching the World Cup because that was the year I got married, so I had my own TV. Uh, If I had have been at home, my my dad's here, he can attest, we wouldn't have been watching the World Cup because that's soccer. Um, It's not football, and so we're not watching it, all right? But this was my first year of marriage, so I had my own TV, and we were watching the World Cup. We were watching all of the World Cup. And we came to the World Cup final, France versus Italy. And the um, eternal snapshot that will stay in our minds forever, all of us who experienced that World Cup final, was when Zinedine Zidane, one of the greatest football players of all time, one of the best players on the France team, turned around to Marco Materazzi, the Italian defender, and headbutted him in the chest. And, and he goes down like a ton of bricks. Uh, Zidane gets sent off, red-carded, and France go on to lose the game on penalties. And, and he is the great um, pariah of that final. You know, the, one of the greatest French footballers of all time gets sent off, and they lose the World Cup. And the Western press was just like, just hung it on him heavily. Like what, he's supposed to be this, this, this veteran player, this great footballer, how could he be so easily taunted by 
uh, an opposition player. It turns out that the Italian was, uh, was making fun of his sister, was saying some very crude things about Zidane's sister. And the Western press hung him out to dry. The, the Eastern press totally got it. And their response to it was, if you can't understand why he responded in that way, then you just don't understand shame on a culture. Zidane is from an Algerian, he has Algerian descent, Algerian Muslim descent, from a shame on a culture. And the fact that someone had dishonoured his sister meant everything in the moment. World Cups, who cares? My sister's honour, everything. And so he responded like someone would respond who's from a shame and an honour culture. That makes total sense of the story of the prodigal son. The older brother's indignation is perfectly reasonable. Jesus' point is, thank God that's not how God behaves. He flips it on its head. Now this morning, as I said, I really want to zoom in on how the cross deals with our shame. And if you're from a honor shame culture and even if you're not it's not like this is not just a total black and white thing right people from the west we get shame we mainly conceive it of of, of as like regret like I did a bad thing and so I feel a bit ashamed it's very different from the from the eastern understanding of it but we still get it we we know what it is to, to carry shame so how does the cross of Jesus deal with that shame how does he take us from our shameful estate and restore us to a place of honour. One of the passages that speaks to this most powerfully, I think, is the one that we had read for us from 1 Peter chapter 2. And so I want to look at that and see how Jesus' death deals with our shame. And we'll move through this pretty quickly, okay? But it'd be good if you've got a Bible, have it in front of you. Uh, Otherwise, we'll have it on the screen. I won't reread it, but we'll work through each verse as we go through. So starting at verse 5, the Apostle Peter says, You yourselves, speaking to Christians, you yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, again, we're probably most of us missing the significance of that, unless you understand in the honor-shame culture of the day, with its Hebrew heritage, the fact that only the pure could be part of the priesthood. Not that they were inherently perfect in any way, but that they had to go through all of these rituals and rites in order to purify themselves so that they could act as priests of the priesthood, that they could offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And Peter says, you're those priests now. And he's speaking to everyone. He's speaking to slaves and free men, women and men, children and elderly people. He's speaking to the whole sweep of, of the church, everyone for whom the gospel is good news. He's saying, you, yourselves, Labor's the point. Yes, it really is even you. Even you are being built into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual 
sacrifices. Verse 6, he says, it stands in Scripture. This is the basis of being able to say this. It stands in Scripture. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Quoting from Isaiah 28, prophecy about Jesus who would be this cornerstone that that, that those who are built on him, built into this holy house, those people would never be put to shame. Paul quotes the same thing in Romans 10. You'll know this passage, great gospel passage, is a shame, honor kind of passage. Have we got Romans chapter 10? He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. And then he says, in the next verse, for the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. So this is central to the gospel. This removal of shame. This designation as Honorable, as pure, as a priesthood. This is replete through the gospel, and you've probably missed it if you don't already understand the shame, whole shame, honor thing. Now, it's important to note here this is not saying you are honorable because you've done nothing shameful. That would be a very Western thing to say. There's nothing wrong with you. Just believe in yourself. That's not what the gospel says. The good news is that you were shameful, but all who believe in Jesus will not be put to shame. That is, they won't get what they deserve. They won't be put to shame. That shame will be removed from them. I heard this stunning story from a friend of mine who's a pastor who said that... um, he knew someone who, a woman who um, had become a Christian in his church, but uh, when she was very young, she was molested, sexually abused. And one thing we know about shame is that shame, we don't carry shame just because of the wrong things we have done, but we also carry it because of the wrong things that have been done to us. And people who have been abused often have this sense of, of uncleanness, and a kind of weight that they carry around with them. So this woman had been molested as a child, and probably as a result of that terrible evil, she had become very promiscuous uh, from a young age, as a teenager. Um, Yeah, just very sexually active. She becomes a Christian. She becomes engaged to somebody, a, a guy, and while she's engaged to that, man waiting to be married, she uh, has an affair. No one knows any of this. They don't know that she's been molested. They don't know that she's had this affair. They don't know that she was very promiscuous. She's been carrying it all on her own back and a great weight of shame. At some point in the marriage, she 
has this strong sense out of this, these, these new Christian convictions she has that she should confess this to her husband. And so she tells him, tells him about the molestation, tells him about the promiscuity, tells him about the adultery. And he gets up and leaves the house. And her response is just to think, what have I done? That was such a dumb thing to do. Why did I tell him this? My, my marriage is over. He's, he's got every right to, to abandon me. And apparently the husband comes back into the house carrying a white nighty, like a, a white nightshirt. And he said to her, you need to take your clothes off and I'm going to put this this." nightshirt on you, this white robe on you. And as I do that, I want, <laughs> I want, I want you to know that <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very beautiful. Um, I want you to know that this is how God sees you and, and this is how I see you. That in the sight of God and, and in the sight of me, because of what Jesus has done for you, you are pure. Which is a, the biblical image, right? A couple of times in the book of Revelation, it talks about saints, not particularly holy people, I mean just people who have been saved, wearing white robes that are white because they've been washed in the blood of Jesus. Don't get hung up on the the logical problem there of something being white having been washed in blood. The point is very poetic, and that is we carry on us all kinds of stain. None of us wears a purely white robe. For every shameful act done to us and every shameful act that we have done to others, we carry these stains, but in the blood of Jesus, those robes are made white as snow. If you, again, if you're a word nerd, if you like big words or theological terminology, this is the doctrine of expiation, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us of our sin. John says to his church, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, And the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all unrighteousness. So the shame, the accumulated shame that we carry around with us is cleansed, is purified in the blood of Jesus. And that is what enables us to be a royal priesthood. That's what enables us to exercise the the ministry of the pure. So he goes on. There's more. In the first part of verse 7, verse 7a, he says, So honor will come to you who believe. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame, so honor will come to you who believe. Shame and honor. Verse 9 to 10, he goes on, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, 
so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, right? Once you were shameful. Once you were the scum of the earth. Once you were not a people. But now, you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This taking what is shameful and declaring it honorable is something that at one level makes sense to people from the shame honor culture. That is, they understand the categories that we're talking about here, but at the same time, it confounds them. At the same time, it doesn't make any sense. Because if you come from a culture like that, you know more than anything else, no one can just take someone who is shameful and say that they're honorable. No one can just make that declaration. This is why in shame honor cultures, you have often a very... Um, entrenched class system or caste system. If you're a slave, you don't just become a prince. The Disney fairy tale thing doesn't make sense in those cultures. Cinderella doesn't become a princess. She's a slave and her daughter will be a slave and so on and so on for all eternity. That might be because karma is at work and they're paying the price for something done in the past. It might just be because that's the way it is. We think of our society in very in, in egalitarian terms. We're all equal. We've all got a chance to make it. They don't think that way. It's hierarchical. And, and that's good. It gives stability to society and gives me a sense of place. So at one level, they understand the shame honor thing, but the idea that someone can just say, you were shameful, but now you're not, is disorientating. It doesn't make sense. And the gospel actually agrees it doesn't make sense. That is, you can't just say you were shameful, but now you're honorable. Something cataclysmic has to happen in order to take a slave and make them a son. In order to take what is shameful and make it honorable. Something cataclysmic has to happen. Something cosmic, something that shakes the very foundations of the universe. And that's exactly what the gospel says has happened in the cross of Jesus. Something cataclysmic, something cosmic, something universe altering happened as the Son of God dies a shameful death on the cross and then rises to an honorable resurrection. Something, something cataclysmic happens. So this is less obvious in the text than the stuff we've already seen, but this idea that Jesus enters into our shame, is condemned as a shameful person, is, it, it, it's kind of there subtly. If you look at verse 4, he says, As you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone, rejected by people, 
but chosen and honoured by God. Another way of translating that would be a living stone shamed by people, but chosen and honoured by God. And again in verse 7, So honour will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. So a vital part of the gospel story for all of us to believe and to receive and to understand is that Jesus was rejected. Jesus was shamed. If you haven't yet contended with the shame of the cross, then you haven't yet understood the cross. And it's really interesting because if you read the Gospels and the Gospel writers, they don't spend a lot of time on what people from the West might spend time on if, if you're going to write a history of the, the crucifixion. You'll find a lot, of, a lot of the books written on the crucifixion that have been written by Western people will major on the fact that Jesus was innocent, so the trial before, the, before Pilate, and the fact that the crucifixion was excruciatingly painful. They'll get right into the nitty-gritty of what it was like to be killed by crucifixion. It's notable that the gospel writers and the writers of the New Testament spend hardly any time on the physical pain of the crucifixion. They spend a lot of time on the shame and the humility, uh, sorry, the humiliation of the crucifixion. This was a really important aspect of the cross. And if we're going to come to Easter this year and understand what they meant when they wrote about it, then we need to understand this. The cross was shameful. It was humiliating. One of the earliest creeds or hymns that we have is Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2. So let me read a little bit of that. He says that we as believers, as, as people in the church, should adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. That is a, a humble, um, a humble, self-effacing, self-abasing attitude. He says who existing in the form of God, that is with absolute Ultimate honour, King of Kings, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but, verse 7, skip over to verse 7, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant or a slave taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most shameful death you could die. Even death on a cross. That is the extent to which Jesus shamed himself. The king of glory enters into our shame to the very lowest point so that even the most shame-filled person can't say Jesus didn't, doesn't know what it feels like to be me. Jesus didn't go as low as I have been. He enters into our shame to the greatest 
extent. And for the gospel writers and for the writers of the New Testament, this was very prominent in their thinking. If you read the gospels and you read the account of the crucifixion as we will on Good Friday, you will see they, the thing that they're concerned with is not the pain, it is the insult. It's the soldiers who are throwing insults at him and punching him in the face. It's the sign that reads derogatorily, King of the Jews. It's the fact that soldiers are rolling dice for Jesus' clothes. And yes, something that we don't major on at all in our theology of the crucifixion, it's the nakedness of Jesus. The artwork has him in a loincloth because they were ashamed of his shame. ironclad historical fact he's naked and he's hanging there in public naked for six hours the shame of soldiers rolling dice for your clothes when you are the god who invented clothes to cover the shame of adam and eve just think about that the god who invented clothes to cover the shame of adam and eve that they brought on themselves is now exposed as naked and ashamed before people who are gambling for his clothes. These themes of shame and honour are just replete through the gospel. And this is what the gospel writers want us to understand. Jesus entered our shame by dying the most shameful death. Hebrews 12, right? If you need any more convincing, here's what it says in Hebrews 12. It says to the church, let's keep our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him or the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. Stop there. All the Westerners are thinking, yeah, he endured the uh, the fact that he was innocent, but he was condemned. That's outrageous. That's not how the law should work. Made a mockery of the law. Um, or he endured the cross. He endured the excruciating pain of the cross. Very Latin understanding, very Western understanding. It comes from the Latin excruciate, literally out of the cross. So excruciating, yeah, that was a really painful death. That's not what he's talking about, the writer of the Hebrews writing to Hebrew people. He endured the cross despising the shame. That's the point. It's not that it wasn't painful. It absolutely was the most painful death the Romans could devise. But that's not the, that's not the theological point. The theological point is that he despised it. That is, he endured its shame. He didn't count the shame of it as too overwhelming. But was saturated in the shame for our sake. He came through the shame of the cross and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the most honourable seat in the universe. See that? That's what Paul is getting at as well, back into that Philippians 2 passage. So he says, you know, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him honoured him and gave him the name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory, which by the way, is another translation of honour. The root word of honour in Greek is the same as glory. Jesus Christ is Lord to the honour of God the Father. He enters into our shame, takes it upon himself, and then rises to ultimate glory and honour, taking with him those who are in him. That's the gospel. That's the Easter story. Good Friday is shame. Easter Sunday is honour and glory. And the good news for shameful people like you and me is that in Christ we go through the same death, burial and resurrection. The good news to everyone here who is carrying shame because of what has been done to you and what you have done to others, the good news for us is that in Christ, our shame is removed, our robes are washed white, and our eternal destiny is honour and glory with him. I have exactly one minute left just to give you the little, the little cherry on the top of all this, which I think is beautiful. This passage that we've been looking at was written by the Apostle Peter. He's the one who has told us that the one who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. And he's the one perhaps most qualified to tell us that. Remember the Easter story? You remember the shameful experience of Peter? The one who in his pride told Jesus that he would never abandon him. And then at the first sign of danger, abandoned him. The one who denied Jesus and then wept bitterly out of shame over his own shamefulness. Let me quickly read to you just Luke's account of what happened at the crucifixion. This is leading up to crucifixion. Jesus has been tried, beaten, insulted, shamed. And then Luke says, they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together and Peter sat among them. Peter. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. Next. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I'm not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And then this, then the Lord turned and looked at Peter It's a shameful scene in the Gospels. The the Lord, Jesus, betrayed, condemned, shamed, looked at Peter, 
And so Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. He was ashamed, absolutely, utterly ashamed of himself. Jesus is condemned to a shameful death which he endures for the joy set before him. Three days later, he rises from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, death, shame. He rises to the greatest place of honor as King of kings and Lord of lords. But before he ascends to the right hand of God, he meets with his apostles again. And he has a very beautiful, very intimate conversation with Peter. And you remember what he does to Peter? He restores him. He doesn't say a word about Peter's shame, his betrayal. He doesn't say, I told you, before the rooster crowed, I told you that would happen. doesn't do any of that. But restores him and sends him out to feed his sheep. That is the experience not just of people from Middle Eastern and Eastern and subcontinental cultures, but of every single one of us. Jesus meets us in our shame and restores us to a place of honour. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we just recognise you again as that father that Jesus told us about who's seeing us in our shame, the shame that we carry around with us like a weight on our back, like a stain on our clothing, sees us in our shame and runs down the road to meet us, covers us in kisses, puts a robe of honour on our backs and a ring of belonging on our fingers and ushers us into the party of those who have been set free from shame and bestowed with great honour. I pray for us now, particularly for those of us who know what it is to carry a weight of shame, who know what it is to feel dirty and dishevelled, tainted and stained by shame. I pray for each one of us that once again today and through this Easter season, we would experience what it's like to be cleansed. To have our scarlet robes washed white as snow. To be raised up out of a tomb of shame to the right hand of our Father in heaven. We thank you and praise you Lord Jesus, that you endured the cross so that we might not have to endure it. That you became shameful so that we no longer have to be. Lord, please fill our mouths now with great praise as we honour you. In Jesus' name, amen.